if you don't want to read the nursing notes in the department, just be prepared to read them from the stand in court. What they have to realize is that that kind of behavior went out with red meat. Being found dead is never a good prognostic sign. Hello, good morning, welcome. Rick Bucata, Risk Management Monthly. This is the uh, October issue. I've got on the line Dr. Gregory Henry, as you expect. Hello, hello. And, and by the way, a touch of winter has come to Michigan. We've already had our first little snowfall. So, uh, And I'm sure in Southern California, you're all choked up about that. Yeah, actually, we're having, it's about 70. We're, we're specializing in mudslides right now. Did you see that <laughs> yeah. thing where we buried about uh, 200 cars? And and that's not even the beginning of El Nino. I mean, this is like unbelievable. I think there's only two great plagues you haven't had. The locust and the frogs haven't come yet. But uh, they're, they're scheduled. They're scheduled <laughs> yeah, to come. I'm sure they uh, are. We also have on the line uh, Mike Frank. Mike has been on with us in the past. Mike, I should have asked you this before. Are you general counsel for uh, EMP, emergency medicine physicians, which is now called something else? Yeah, I called something else, but I'm still called general counsel. Okay, now what is it? What is the name of your new uh, endeavor? U.S. Acute Care Solutions. Oh, something. Is that a sentence? Is there a, a adjective? <laughs> a U.S. Acute Care Solutions. Well, it, it has it has the wonderful name USACS. So you oh, just call it USACS. Okay. USACS. Okay. I've heard of ball sacks. Yeah, no, the USAC. Yeah, that's pretty good. Now let let's 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 keep it clean. All right. Uh, listen, hey Greg, tell us about this email that we got. Kind of diffused us. Well, for for those of you who've been following our discussions on laws in various states protecting the emergency physicians, no, we've been going through a problem in Georgia. Georgia became sort of the number one state to protect emergency docs for a while, and then they had a case in which somebody, which all of us know very closely and have taught with and done everything else, made the flagrant statement that the uh, case involved in a standard emergency medicine case, it was, it was egregious, and on that basis, they were able to continue against the emergency physician. Now, those of us who have been following that case hated that outcome, and so Georgia went ahead and put in another bill, Senate Bill 86, to try and correct that problem. We are informed by Mike DeFrank, not Michael Frank, who's on the line with us, but Mike DeFrank from Green Bay, Wisconsin, lets us know that Senate Bill 86 died in the Health and Human Services Committee in Georgia. So those of you who thought that we were going to get this corrected this year in Georgia, sorry to say it ain't going to happen. That's, that's really too bad. And by the way, the uh, the, the term used was uh, gross negligence and because the standard that was required under the Georgia statute to establish liability was it was gross negligence. And the unfortunate thing is gross negligence was defined by the court as not even a minimum of care, and it was clear that in this particular case, which involved a pulmonary embolus, that there was some care, even if one could maintain that there was ordinary negligence. It really didn't make any sense that there was gross negligence, but that's what uh, the expert uh, testified to. What was Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that those words came out of his mouth, and this is a guy I have opposed many times 
but but I couldn't believe that it would come out of his mouth, and it did. It, it, it's it's really disheartening, I think, for emergency doctors. Is this the uh, no fault? There was about three states that were trying to move to no fault, and this was an undoing of no fault. Is that what actually happened here? No, it was not not no fault, Rick. What it was was it changed the uh, the standard that was applied to establish liability, and also the standard for evidence. You had to prove that there was gross negligence, but the standard used to prove it was by clear and convincing evidence. So it was not no fault. It just made it very difficult or at least we thought it was going to make it very difficult to establish liability on the parts of uh, the emergency physician. I, you know, this is public record. I don't mind using his name. This was Dr. Rosen of Rosen's Text. He and I actually opposed each other on a headache case once, and it came out that I had written the chapter on headache in Rosen's Text that was then in force. I just think that this is way over the top. I read the facts of this case. As Mike points out, it's a pulmonary embolus case. And even on our best days, each one of us has trouble with the diagnosis of pulmonary embolus. It's not a simple question, nor is the workup simple. And I think that to call this gross negligence totally distorts what the original law in the state of Georgia had tried to accomplish on our behalfs. I just, I, I just couldn't believe that he would use those words. Oh, well. Should we move on to the next topic, which is uh, telemedicine? Oh, by the way, Mark Plaster, Logan Plaster, started a new publication entitled Telemedicine Magazine. I did see it very slickly done. I like the artwork, and it's a lot, a lot of information regarding this, uh, this field. But let's do a little background. You want to say something, Greg? Yeah, I want, to, I want to talk about the fact that telemedicine has been going on since the invention of tele-anything. I'm sure they had it with the telegraph. I'm sure they had it with smoke signals. This is you getting advice from some medical provider somewhere who's not directly in attendance for you at that moment in time. Ever since a physician talk to the patient over the phone, there's been telemedicine. And, you know, they say, well, there will be a million people this year who get advice over their computer, by email, by this or that. Bottom line is, it's not huge yet, but it has the potential, I think, to now take off only because we have so many different devices and people are figuring out ways to charge for it. I don't know a major group in emergency medicine, and I'd be interested in Mike's opinion in this, who isn't doing tele-something at this moment in time. Right, Mike? Yeah, they probably are. And as a matter of fact, uh, you know, in our company, we invested in and actually helped build and manage a telemedicine company called uh, Stat Health with Stat Docs. Uh, which was recently bought by Teladoc. Teladoc now includes that company, but in the course of managing it, uh, I became intimately familiar with the laws involved because we had to, to go in each state. Uh, and unfortunately, there's no federal oversight of this or federal laws so that you have to become familiar with basically the medical board regulations in each state. And from a risk management perspective, this is where it gets important. If, as a physician, you're going to be engaged in telemedicine 
for either your group or one of these companies that provides telemedicine services, it's important that you find out what the regulations are and whether your company that's employing you for this is going to cover you for the board actions which may take place, the investigations which may may take place if the board decides that your telemedicine activities violate the board regulations. I, I can tell you we're probably still around five years away from the most of the state medical boards catching up with the technology. To a large extent, one of the, the biggest bugaboos among the, the boards is that in telemedicine, you're not able to perform an in-person physical examination. That's probably a red herring because we all know, especially in family practice and primary care, there's a lot of care which is provided over the phone. And to a large extent, a lot of the things that we see in the emergency department, the physical examination, the actual touching physical examination may be superfluous. Sometimes it's for the show, which Greg talks about (laughs) so much. And the fact is, there's a lot that you can do not only over the phone, but one of the things we standardized on was webcam contact. So you can actually see the person. But for example, UTIs, you don't need to do a physical examination for a report of a UTI. Most colds, uh, you can examine somebody in an otherwise healthy person. You can do a, a reasonable assessment based on a webcam and sometimes over the phone. But many state medical boards still standardize on the idea that if you aren't doing an in-person physical examination, then you're violating the Medical Practice Act for the state. I think there are two issues involved. Number one is the billing issue is going to be challenged by various people. They're not going to pay you the same amount of money. The second one is the liability issue. And having run a couple of insurance companies, I'm going to advise any doc who's going to do this to get a copy of the of the declaration page of the insurance policy, which they say covers them. Because I want to see where it says in there on their telemedicine services, how they're going to be covered, for how much, who's going to pay if there's a challenge at the state board level, who's going to take that physician and provide their their legal services should this be challenged. And, And if you don't think that can't be expensive... I have been involved in a physician who's being challenged now in the state of New York on another issue. He's got $200,000 of his personal money involved in paying his attorneys. So I think that uh, to all of you listening, if you're going to do this, make sure the first person you save in emergency medicine is yourself. Get a copy, read it, have somebody give you an opinion, and... um, Mike, what you, you know, you're the attorney. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. You have to do that because most uh, most policies will uh, exclude telemedicine, so you need a rider and an endorsement for that. Uh, and just as important as the money that you will pay for the defense attorney is the is the downstream effect if you get an adverse ruling from a state medical board. That's reportable to the data bank, and usually, you know, if you're doing telemedicine. You've got to be licensed in the state in which the patient is located. So a lot of these telemedicine companies, what happens is the physicians are becoming licensed in multiple states. 
and some of them in 50 states, usually it's less than that, so, so that a, a physician will be assigned to cover calls from, let's say, 10, 15 states. But you've got 15 licenses. And if you get an adverse ruling in one state, most of the other states require that you report that adverse ruling to those other states, regardless of whether it's been reported to the data bank. And so you you have a real mess on your hand if you don't report it to all those other states. And all those other states, some of them may want to launch their own investigation. Some of them will say, we don't really care about it, which is it's all over the board as far as the, the reaction and the status of the different state medical boards. The other thing is the states have not decided where they want to be on the issue. For example, there's some states which have gone together. I think there's 10 or 11 who will respect the license on a telemedicine call from a a bunch of other states. There are other states, particularly those which are heavily populated, heavy doctor states, who they don't want any more doctors involved. They've got plenty of doctors. They don't need any doctors. So if you're talking about New York State, Pennsylvania, California, it's a much more difficult issue at this moment in time. I think Mike's original comment is we're five years behind this coming to some resolution. I I would think that the five-year mark is probably about right because they're all going to have to talk to each other and decide what they're going to let go on. The problem is the science and the technology is ahead of the law, as is the case in most medical issues. Yeah, we're going to see some litigation with this. Teladoc uh, was obstructed in Texas, and they recently won a ruling against the Texas Medical Board, where the court said the Texas Medical Board was out of line. And so we're going to see more of that as well. Yep. I would agree. Gentlemen, we have an article that is entitled Minimizing Your Risk When Practicing Telemedicine. It's uh, from Medical Economics, written by an attorney by the name of Paul Square in the September 3rd, 2015 uh, issue. He's a former general counsel for Teladoc, and he got into three or four areas, specifically this one about licensure. He notes that before Congress, there has been a move to create a national license. And the states don't like that. The states want the each uh, state to control the ability to license doctors. So one of the perverse things that has happened is that now there is a thing called the Interstate Medical License Compact. Now, it, it says 11 states, but I could only find eight. But in any case, this was drafted by the state medical boards collectively so that they can still have uh, power to license, and they don't want a national license whatsoever. And yes, if you are certified by this body or for practicing in 11 states, you have to follow the rules of all 11 states. If the, if the patient's in one state, you have to follow the rules in that state. If patient's in another state, you have to follow the rules in the other state. So it, it theoretically can become a, a, a little, little clumsy. Current members, Alabama, Minnesota, South Dakota, Utah, West Virginia, Wyoming. I'd have to say they're fairly rural kinds of places, and maybe I could understand uh, why they would really want to hook up there. This is the Federation of State Medical Boards who came up with this. 30 states have legislations in the works to join this consortium. Yeah, and the problem is not all 30 states want to go into it the exact same way. So it still isn't clear that it's going to be a, uh, a service, the same service in all the states. That's not done yet. 
And if you'll notice, as we, we pointed out, they're rural states. There's a lot of money involved in this question. Whenever you wonder at the bottom of anything being proposed, ask two questions, where's the power, where's the money? When you answer those two questions, you kind of know what's going on here. The state of California charges a lot for a license. They don't want to have to share that money with anybody else. So, And they want the ability to be able to punish people without, without reference to other states. So this is, this is not a simple question yet. Rick. Well, the, the money issue is one of the re- reasons why this is just, it's just a matter of time before this comes to pass. Because uh, the, the people who are most interested in having telemedicine and the people who the telemedicine companies are marketing to are the payers and the employers. I mean, the employers, their, their health insurance costs are going up. They're only too happy to have minor problems taken care of by telemedicine. I mean, look, they pay 80 bucks for a telemedicine vi- visit. What's the average cost of an ER visit these days for a minor problem? $2,000, something like that? Um, yeah, close. Yeah, and, and so the insurers, the payers, they're only too happy to sign up and say, you know, we've got, uh, we've got uh, 40,000 lives here. Can you, we will market this as a benefit to our insureds and the same thing with large employers. Uh, we actually trialed this with our own employees. We, we gave them as a benefit uh, that you can call the, the stat doc for a minor problem. And they were thrilled with this. You know, someone's got a rash or a, a minor uh, you know, like a cold or, or something, they were just thrilled not to have to go to the doctor or to go to the ER, but yet to call, uh, to make a call like this. And in terms of the money, the money is a fraction of what the healthcare costs would otherwise be. Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, all of us have to realize that as the power and the money shift, the hospital as we knew it, as we grew up with, is going to become an institution of the past. If you don't have triple IVs running and a dehissing wound, you're not going to be sitting in an expensive per day building. It's going to be the care is going to be given out a different way, and and I think that uh, third party payers are going to have a lot more say as to how there's going to be bulk purchase. We're going to give you this much money to take care of this many people, and telemedicine's going to going to move right up right up the chart if the payment systems uh, can be predicted. Can we go back to the uh, standard of care a little bit uh, in the article that I referenced? Initially, it says the standard must be equivalent to what is expected for in-person care as appropriate to the patient's age and presenting condition. Uh, So the question there is, what about the ability to perform diagnostic tests or perform a physical exam? Now, Mike, you made some reference to that, but if in fact... They hold you to the standard of care as if you were not doing telemedicine, then the inability to touch somebody, I think, can become a, a bit of a quagmire. They want some exceptions to this. So the American Telemedicine Association has proposed, and some courts have accepted as appropriate, standards of care for telemedicine encounters, even if they conflict with the provider's local standard of care. What do you think about that? Well, you know, you um, you and Greg started to deal with this, I think, in last month or, or two months ago, talking about the definition of standard of care. And I tell you, there is so much misunderstanding about uh, about what that is. And everybody talks about 
this standard of care and my standard of care and the different standards of care. The standard of care is defined as what a reasonable physician with the same or similar training would do in the same or similar circumstances. And I think the example that was that was uh, being discussed was the family practitioner working in an emergency department who transferred a patient by helicopter who ended up with a, a tension pneumo. And what was the standard of care uh, applied to that? And would it be the standard of care of a board certified emergency physician? Well, n- no, that's if you go back to the definition, the standard of care is going to be what a reasonable family practitioner with that degree of training would do in the same or similar circumstances. Now, it may be that a jury would decide that what a reasonable family practitioner would do would be to know about the complication of the uh, tension pneumothorax in air transport, or it may not. But that is the definition. And applying that to telemedicine, the people who say that, that the standard of care shouldn't change in telemedicine are really ignoring what the definition is. The standard of care should be what a reasonable physician performing telemedicine would do under the same or similar circumstances. And that does not necessarily require the same thing as uh, what a family practitioner would do in an office. The same reasoning could apply that the standard of care applied to that family practitioner in his office shouldn't be the same as the standard of care applied to an emergency physician who has access to CTs, MRIs, and other consultants. It's the same type of thing. The definition remains the same. The application will be different. I think Mike would agree, though, that we know what the definition says legally, what the, what the legalese is. In court, it's always difficult to convey some of these things to a jury. Uh, they hear, well, this is what I would do at the University of Michigan or the University of, or, or Ohio State or something like that. And uh, the juries can become confused as to the issue being tried, I think. It's, it's, it's often extremely difficult. The other thing is... I, I did a case in Wyoming, which has had to do with a small six-bed emergency department in the middle of nowhere, which basically typifies Wyoming. And it had to do with, would the family practitioner who's taking his turn covering the emergency department, would he open the chest and cross-clamp the aorta in an auto accident? And I just said... First of all, most emergency doctors don't do that. <laughs> Number two, wh- yeah. when did a family practitioner in their training ever actually perform a procedure like that? To me, it was ludicrous testimony. The judge allowed it in. Yeah, and and one of the things that you have to understand, and Greg, I'm sure you know this, is that we can talk all we want about the law, but w- when you're in a trial, the judge is the law. And that's, yeah, why, that's why you never want to piss off the judge because the judge has a great deal of latitude and control over what gets let in and what gets excluded. And, and you know, the, the example you use in Wyoming brings up an interesting point. I mean, we were talking about maybe that the family practitioner should be held to a lesser standard of care. One of the things is you can't ignore your own abilities. For example, if that had been a cardiothoracic surgeon who was moonlighting in the emergency department, he couldn't say, well, uh, I 
I didn't uh, open the chest and cross clamp the aorta because that's not the standard of care for a an emergency physician. You can't pretend that you're not trained in cardiothoracic surgery. It, it, for emergency physicians, you know, one of the the ways this question has come up, I've got asked by emergency physicians who are also certified as paramedics, if they go out and they, for old time's sake, they still run with a squad. They run as a paramedic. And so they say, well, if something comes up, will I be held to the standard of a paramedic or an emergency physician? And my answer is, you can't pretend that you don't know emergency medicine. You're going to be held to the standard of what an emergency physician knew. So it works both ways, both up and down. Yep, and there's no way in hell that those questions are not going to be asked by plaintiff's counsel as you're sitting there. Doctor, you're well aware of X, Y, and Z, being a board-certified emergency physician. uh, I've written enough question lines for enough attorneys that this could be quite a show in front of the jury. Hey, listen, before we move on to our next major topic, HIPAA, I did want to throw in a little bit of background regarding where this telemedicine business is going and how fast. I don't know whether you know this, but uh, Google, uh, there's some company by the name of Google. What a silly name. Yeah, what a silly name. <laughs> and uh, Dr. It's going nowhere. Yeah. And Dr. Phil and Google have come together to do a thing called Doctor on Demand. It began at the end of 2013. And what you do is you get on telemedicine. 1,400 board-certified physicians. Board-certified physicians are available to you. You download this app. This app has been downloaded a few million times as of the 2013. $40 a visit for the physician with this video cam business. $40. It even provides psychological counseling. That's $50 for 25 minutes. So you better get your depression solved in 25 minutes or it's 50 bucks. Uh, how, how can you ever prove they gave bad advice? <laughs> See, I want to I know what the gold standard is here now for advice. <laughs> and uh, now, now uh, lactation counseling, lactation counseling <laughs> between 40 and $70. That costs more than uh, psychological advice. I, I don't even know what lactation counseling is. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know yet. They give an example here. Now, here's an example of how they stole a visit from the emergency department. So some kid had been to the emergency department with a broken nose, and uh, the the kid was running into some issues. Instead of going back to the ER, they telemedicined, and they were extraordinarily successful at resolving this minor problem. Doctor on Demand, a spokesman for that that group, says, catch this. They treat 95% of the patients who call with 5% being referred to specialists, 95% of the people who call. Most of them are working mothers with kid-related problems. Uh, Other companies, Teladoc, MD Live, America Well, HealthTap, they even have one that specializes in dermatology called Spruce, and Maven specializes in women's health. And yes, Greg, the American Telemedicine Association estimates, catch this, that nearly 1 million people We'll see a physician via a webcam in 2015, and United Healthcare announced plans to cover video doctor visits. The dermatology consult is not just done over the phone, is it? 
Because can't you hear that? Hey, hold the rash up to the receiver, and I'll I'll give you an opinion. I mean, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. I, I, I can diagnose one that way. Is it a sandpapery sound there? Rub that on the receiver. Is it a sand? Yeah, yeah, yeah ru- rub it. With it too? Oh, yeah. That's- All right, let's move on here, guys, yeah, yeah, to exactly. the next big topic at hand. It's HIPAA, and I didn't actually read this article when it came out because it was involved too many pages. This was in Emergency Physicians Monthly. So I'm going to take some substantial liberties here, Greg, because you and I write columns for those guys. It, this is a, a, yes. a paper entitled, 10 Times HIPAA May Not Apply. And actually, when I read it, it was extraordinarily good because it was very focused on situations that relate to emergency medicine. It was written by Jesse Pines and two uh, yep. attorneys, and it was really well done. So let, let's kind of start off with this thing. They listed like 10 scenarios, 10 scenarios. They also have a chart which has every regulation that would suggest options where HIPAA may not apply. That chart is relatively complicated. We're going to cite the article. You can go back and read it yourself. But let's go to item number one, situation number one. A family member calls to ask about the status of their relative in the emergency department. So is that a HIPAA if you talk to them or not? So where do we go from here? Well, here's what these guys said. They say providers, us, may disclose directory information. That's, that basically says the patient's here and the general health status. And you hear that all the time, that the hospital says the patient is stable and yes, they're here kind of thing. You can get that information, but you have to identify who you want the information on by name. Is Mr. Smith at the hospital? Yes, he's at the hospital and he's in stable condition. Providers must first provide patients the opportunity to object or to agree to the disclosure of even this directory information that says you're there. If the patient is incapacitated, the provider must inform the patient that such disclosures were made and give the patient the opportunity to object to further disclosures as soon as practicable. This requirement protects, for example, victims of domestic violence who may want their whereabouts developed through their abuser. This opportunity to object may be offered verbally or in writing, such as through that notice of privacy practices that is given to patients upon arrival in the hospital. Gentlemen, any comments? Yeah, I got a couple comments. First of all, let, let's back up and, and set the stage here. We, we've had about 12 years of experience with implementation of HIPAA, and yet despite that, there's still a lot of misinformation out there, a lot of people giving bad advice about it. Uh, part of the problem is it's a complicated law. Just to break it down very simply, here's the basic thing about HIPAA. Protected health information, in other words, your confidential information, may not be disclosed unless there's an exception in the privacy rule. That's the basic rule. Unless there's an exception in the privacy rule, you can't disclose it. So the default is don't disclose. Most of the exceptions are what's called permissive, not mandatory disclosures. In other words, most of them say, under this particular circumstance, you may disclose. It doesn't mean you have to disclose. There are a couple where you have to. For example, if a patient wants their own health information, their own record, you have to give it to them. And even there, there's an exception, the psychiatric privilege rule. But that's the basic rule. So the 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 information that you're talking about, this question number one, yes, if someone calls in and identifies the patient by name, 
the hospital can give out very specific information about the patient's condition in very general terms in their location. But one of the things that the patient can ask for and do is become what's called a hidden patient. In other words, the hospital is not even allowed to confirm that they're there, much less give information about. And, and supposedly the purpose of that is, for example, a celebrity may want to be hidden, a politician may not uh, to have revealed, or someone who is the victim of domestic abuse or other violence d- does not want to be found. Like Lamar Odom would be an example? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> Yes, that was well hidden. That was very well hidden. Nobody knew about that. Yeah, well, I'm not sure he was the victim of domestic abuse, but right. uh, I'm sure he would want to be hidden. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. There's no reason for you to be uh, babbling away on the phone to various people, particularly those you can't identify who they are. The easiest thing is 95% of our patients can talk to us, and I'll say, so-and-so's called in. Would you like to speak to them i'll let the patient speak to them i'll let i'll i'll say uh, do you want me to talk to them what do you want me to say these sorts of things but if the patient can talk to you you can get permission from them to release to anybody they want but if you can't get that information then i think the idea of being as mum as possible is not a bad is not a bad thing greg do number two here Oh, a person identifying herself as a patient's physician calls the ED provider to ask about the patient's status. If the patient can talk, you can say, Dr. So-and-so is on the line. Can I talk to them about your condition? I've had people say, I don't know a doctor so-and-so. You don't know who that person is. Most of us, by the way, have identifiers. We have people, if I get permission from the doc, I can call them back. They've got a cell phone registered. They've got a fax. They've got an email, something we can send to, which would work just fine. Be cautious. What do you mean, their doctor? And, And I want the patient to still let me know that I have a right to release it to this person. There are people who don't want their family doctor of 30 years knowing about their gonococcus, and I, you know, particularly if they're also friends with your wife. So uh, be a little careful with this. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, but, yeah, but the question is wh- whether you knew who the physician was and what their relationship was to the patient. You know, the other thing about HIPAA, which... Uh, Health and Human Services and the Office of Civil Rights, which enforces HIPAA, said over and over again, is that HIPAA was never intended to interfere with the ordinary and efficient practice of medicine. medicine. So if, for example, if if a family physician has referred a patient to the ER and the patient says, Dr. Smith is my do- doctor, he sent me in here, and you do some tests and Dr. Smith calls in and wants to know what the results of the tests are, you don't really have to ask anything more because one of the exceptions to HIPAA non-disclosure is the treating physician rule. A treating physician has a right to have all of the information, all the medical information about the patient. So you know that Dr. Smith is going to be following up with the patient later. You know that Dr. Smith sent the patient in. There is no restriction on the information that you provide to Dr. Smith. Unless for some reason the patient has told you, Dr. Smith sent me in, I don't want you telling anything to Dr. Smith. 
under those circumstances, then uh, you can agree with the patient that I won't disclose to Dr. Smith. Mike, this does come under this uh, permissive uh, issue here, but it, you would yes. be a real considered a real jerk if you you took some kind of position that you got weird about giving information about the patient who was just sent in by that doctor. The impl- there's an inference that. There's some ongoing relationship that the patient's going to go back to that doctor. The doctor needs to know what was done, what was not done, what treatment was rendered, etc. So I don't yeah, exactly, think- you know, and the, the the treating physician rule or the treatment exception provides an exception to another basic rule of HIPAA, and that's called the minimal necessary rule. And that is for most permissive disclosures, you're permitted to disclose only the minimum information necessary to accomplish the purpose of the disclosure. In other words, if if Dr. Smith is a con, an infectious disease consultant and wants to know about the infectious disease records or the, those tests, it doesn't give you permission to release the patient's psychiatric records to the infectious disease consultant. Now, the 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 one caveat here is that ordinarily the treating physician has a right to all the patient's medical information, not just what is minimally necessary. That's, the, that's a major exception to the minimal necessary rule. By the way, when we think about the usual and customary practice of medicine, I think that this is where people make a mistake. We exchange information all the time as the customary practice of medicine, and that we would expect that for the most efficient health care. So I don't think that most emergency doctors have to worry about speaking with patients, physicians. That's what we do. We pass information on. We're much more criticized for not passing on information from a medical legal standpoint than from passing on too much information. Yeah, and you know, Greg, here's the irony to it. You know, before HIPAA, you you know, you all remember when you had a patient in the ER and you needed to get a record from another ER, the patient had been there a couple days before or a week before, what we had to do, we had to go through this business. You go to the patient and you have them sign a consent form. You fax the consent form over to the other hospital, which says to release the ER record, and then they fax the record back. Under HIPAA, you don't need to ask the patient for separate consent to get that other ER record. All you really have to do is send the other hospital the general consent for treatment that the patient signed when they came in. And this is actually confirmed. This was a, a uh, one of the FAQs uh, under the, um, the Office of Civil Rights website. They were asked about this, and they say, no, you do not need separate consent from the patient to get records from another hospital under the treatment exception. Well, number three is a quickie. A member of the press calls to ask about the status of a patient in the ED. And I guess you're back to this idea of, yes, the patient is, well, and you have to ask specifically by name for the patient that you're interested in. And the hospital can give the location and general health status as they noted before. They also noted that a provider may disclose protected health information to the media were necessary to identify, locate, or notify individuals responsible for the patient's care. Maybe somebody comes in, they're comatose, but there are some records about who they are. They were trying to locate the family so they could disclose that to the media at that time. But media-initiated inquiries about a specific patient do not fall with this, within this exception. 
Yeah, in all truth, there are about slightly less than 4,000 hospitals in the United States. Very few of them have a big problem, but I was at a meeting in California, and of course, Cedar sinai was represented there. This is Hospital to the Stars, for those of you who don't know it. They have people calling the desk on an hourly basis, TMZ and that sort of thing, trying to get information. In general, you don't know anything, you don't look up anything at that hospital if a an employee calls up a certain patient's records. And this had to do with the calling up of Madonna's gonorrhea culture or something like that. And uh, careful there. Well, I, I, what I it don't was. that exactly <laughs> the, the case. Well, what it was, it had that to do with example. that per, example. But that person was, that's instant firing at that hospital. Unless you have a reason to be calling up information, you better watch out because. Whenever there's a possibility that they could release information and make a few bucks on the side, this is not a good thing. Stay away from that. Yeah, UCLA and both Cedars, and I'm sure a lot of other hospitals, have what's called a zero tolerance. Zero. Uh, you, you do this once, you're out. Actually, Rick, it's, it's worse than just getting fired or getting out. I think I sent you the, the article of this, uh, this poor schnook. In 2003, he was... It looked like he was a researcher at the UCLA School of Medicine, and he was uh, he was going to be dismissed from the job. And I guess he got depressed, so he started accessing and reading the medical records of his supervisor. And then over the next few weeks, he started accessing the records of ver- various celebrities who had been been hospitalized there. Well, he was criminally prosecuted, and he uh, received a, a prison sentence. Uh, for that, even though he he didn't sell the records, you know, usually prison time is reserved for people who profit for money, accessing confidential information. Not this guy. Uh, this guy was sent to prison over this. Greg, you got number four there. Yeah, th- this is a this is an absolutely common problem every day in busy emergency departments. A patient is in a hallway bed, and another patient, obviously in a hallway bed, overhears their medical history. Have we violated HIPAA at that moment in time? I think the the real answer here is you got to do what you got to do. If you stand up and yell what they're saying, maybe that's a problem. But I don't think if you're doing the best you can to keep it private, that's any flagrant violation. We can only do what we can do. And you can't worry about every comment made back and forth. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, the Office of Civil Rights has made some specific comments about this. These are specifically accepted in the privacy rule as what's called incidental disclosures. And the, uh, the OCR has made it very clear that an emergency department, a hospital, is not expected to reconfigure the emergency department or put up walls or soundproofing or do anything else. So all you're expected to do is take reasonable precautions not to have confidential information overheard. But if it's incidental to your ordinary and efficient practice of medicine, that's not going to be considered a HIPAA violation. Now, there was an area where where there was some challenge to that, and that had to do with the whiteboard or the green board, which was in view of everybody, which had patients' names, potential diagnoses, that sort of things on them. Yes. And I think what you're seeing with all of the electronics now, 
those things are on smaller screens away from the patient view, and that seems to be the solution to that problem. Yeah, that would not have been considered an incidental disclosure because there, there were reasonable steps which the hospital could take to prevent that. Same thing is tr- true, for example, your uh, your computer screens. They're not you're, you're not expected to put them in places where patients or visitors or other people are going to be able to look at them. You're expected, for example, and you know we've had some investigations which have confirmed this, you're expected to have timeouts on them so that if a screen is left unattended, it's going to blank and not have information which people could view. Let me just go back to that for one second because there's nothing more frustrating to a doctor to have a screen well out of everyone's way that every 10 minutes goes down. Now, they've gone out, they, they're doing something. I think there has to be some more reasonableness here. Like, I understand maybe a half hour or something like that, but it is a terrible problem for doctors in their closed set to have to call up those charts again <laughs> to enter something into it. So there's got to be some reasonableness here, I would think. You really want, want to get me started on electronic medical records? No, we all, only have about a half hour no, left, no. guys. No, no, I don't, no, no, <laughs> no. More than that, I'm not at, I, since we're only looking at each other over video, I can't treat your hypertensive <laughs> stroke, which is about to take place here, Mike. Yeah. Let's move along here, guys. we got six to go. Number five, a provider calls another hospital to obtain a patient's record. The hospital requires that the provider send a signed form from the patient authorizing the disclosure. Well, didn't we just kind of go through that? Yeah. Yeah, we just We just did that. that, yeah. Greg, you got six. This is a big one. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, I know. A patient's family members ask the provider not to inform the patient of a serious diagnosis. I example a brain tumor made in the ED that was shared with the family for uh, for a patient who came in incapacitated. They were in status epilepticus. Now the patient is awake and alert, but the family doesn't want this patient to have to deal with this information. She maybe grandma. She's old. They say they will take care of it. What should we do? Well, I've had this case. This was an an older Muslim woman brought in by a very tight family. And the son, who has basically been handling everything for her, said, you speak to me about this. I handle her. It's that culture where women are protected by the, the male presence, all that sort of thing. So what I basically did was I had both the son and the mother together. I asked her. Who would you like me to discuss this with? And she said, oh, my son takes care of all those things for me. So she basically gave me permission to carry on the discussion with the son and the other males of the family. Interesting, no other females in a private room. And they were going to deal with it. I think that was a reasonable way of handling it. But the woman was awake, alert and competent. So I thought I needed to at least have her transfer that responsibility to the son. Mike, was that a reasonable way to handle this? It wasn't just reasonable. It was the best way to handle it. I mean, this really isn't so much a HIPAA or legal question as it is an ethical and cultural uh, question. There's an interesting uh, book by Eric Topol. Yeah. 
which is currently out. It's called The Patient Will See You Now. And one of the things he talks about initially is the fact that in medicine, years ago, earlier in this century, actually not so long ago, it was the standard to not tell the patient about serious diagnoses. Never tell the patient they have cancer. Only tell the family. The idea that they they can't handle it, it'll actually hurt them. And what we know since then, is that that's actually the wrong thing to do, and it actually makes the patient feel isolated and is the wrong thing to do. Now, having said that, there are some patients that really don't want to know. They do want the family to handle it. And so, Greg, the the way you handle that was absolutely correct. On the other hand, if the patient had said, I want to know, and the family is saying, don't tell her, I'm sure, Greg, at that point, you would have told her because she said she wants to know, and that would have complied with HIPAA also, which says exactly. That, and that's not a permissive disclosure. That's a mandatory disclosure if the patient wants their information. Rick, have you had experiences with this? What have you done? No, I, I don't necessarily recall any specific cases, but I think that the general principles that are being outlined throughout this document are, are, are pretty clear. That you, you have some permissive situations where you use your judgment, and then you have other situations where it is required that you provide the information, and you made the distinction in the case to, uh, that you just did. You know, Rick, while we're talking about discussions and disclosure to family, one of the things which this article cited was that you can discuss the patient's confidential information with family members or those responsible for the care. And they say, if the patient is given an opportunity to object, well, that's not completely accurate. Correct. I mean, probably the best practice is to allow the patient to object. And I want to tell you about a a case we had. We had uh, one of our emergency physicians was treating a gentleman who was being evaluated for chest pain. And his wife was in the room with him. The wife had had come with him. And the emergency physician elicited the information from the patient before his wife arrived about his cocaine use. And apparently his wife didn't know about this. And in going over the results of all the testing, the emergency physician counseled the patient about the cocaine use and the adverse effects and so forth. Well, apparently the patient was pretty upset because he hadn't want his wife to know about this. And he complained to the hospital. He demanded compensation. And the hospital's chief information officer cited the same provision, which is cited in this article, and actually told us and the emergency physician that the emergency physician had violated HIPAA by not giving the patient an opportunity to object, and that's required under HIPAA. Well, that's not right, because under the privacy rule, If the patient has decision-making capacity, the protected health information may be disclosed to family members or others responsible for their care if the physician, quote, reasonably infers from the circumstances based on the exercise of professional judgment that the individual does not object to the disclosure. And if you want to know how to interpret that, actually CMS issued a guidance on this And they said, and I'm going to quote from the guidance of what kind of circumstances justify the inference that the patient does not object, quote, situations in which covered providers may infer an individual's agreement to disclose protected health information include, for example, when a patient brings a spouse into the doctor's office when treatment is being discussed. In other words, the physician 
could use his judgment and say, hey, the wife came in with him. He's not objecting to the wife being here, so I can discuss all this information. Now, again, best practice is probably going to ask, it gets a little bit dicey, asking the patient in front of the wife, do you want your wife to hear this information? And the patient's got, got to say, nah, wifey, go wait in the waiting room. That, that can get, <laughs> get a little bit dicey. But the bottom line here is that the emergency physician in this case did not yeah. violate HIPAA. And the chief information officer was absolutely wrong about this, which goes back to what I was saying. Even today, we're st- there's still a lot of misinformation and misinterpretation about what HIPAA does and does not require. I, I had this exact same case, 45-year-old guy. I was concerned about his heart, and his wife was in the waiting room. So I said, well, I, I want you to stay. I think we need to do some further work. He said, you can't discuss this with my wife. I want to go. You cannot discuss it. So what I did was I walked him out to the waiting room, shook hands with him, and said, John, if you change your mind, come back. Ooh, you devil. Uh, And she (laughs) grabbed the front of my jacket and said, what do you mean change his mind? And I said, well, ma'am, I have not been given express permission to speak with you about his health care, and he has that right. She grabbed me again and said, you have permission. And then, <laughs> and you could see him glaring at her and, and, and the two of them going back and forth, and then he says, all right, tell her. Well, do you think he stayed? Of course he stayed. No matter yeah. what I did to him, it wouldn't be as painful as going home with her. I've got one like that. And four hours later, upstairs, he arrested and if I'd let him out and she hadn't heard that discussion, you know, then I would be discussing this with a summons and complaint in my hand. I, I know that would have happened. Yep. Here's uh, number seven. Emergency department staff calls a patient to provide a test result that resulted after the patient was discharged, but the patient is unavailable. The family member who answers the phone asks for the results, stating that they will share it with the patient. So, gentlemen, what do you think there? No. Uh, these guys say no. You you shouldn't discuss the results. The best practice is uh, is to ask the patient to call you back or call back later, but not to actually discuss the results. There there have been so many cases, and we've seen them, right. where patients complain that so and so who answered the phone they didn't want them to know about it. That was my mother. I didn't want her to know I was pregnant. Or that was my my father. I didn't want him to get the results of my uh, my HIV test or so forth. Absolutely not. Yeah, the- I, I couldn't agree more. What you can say is, here's the number. Have them call us. We're happy to speak. I would note on the chart that I called them, made home contact at such and such a time. They are to call us back to protect yourself that you haven't left a laboratory test hanging. But by the same token, to just, uh, I I think they refer to that in law as arbitrary and capricious release of information. Yeah, and the other important thing here is is to make sure when you make these calls, whether you get through to the patient or not, someone has to document in the medical record about the attempt to make the call because one of the, the fertile grounds for plaintiff attorneys these days are the failure to notify of late results or, for example, overreads of x-rays which contradict the, the wet read in the emergency department, culture results, and so forth. And the plaintiff attorneys just love these cases because they don't have to prove that any was, ne- was negligent, just that the, the system let the patient down. 
you could tell the age of everybody on this call because Mike uses yeah, wet, the phrase wet read. Wet read. <laughs> uh, young doctors don't even realize they used to actually be damp <laughs> out, of, out of the machine, and that's why we called them wet reads. Oh, no. When I was in the Indian Health Service in the early 70s, we were taught how to take x-rays and develop x-rays, and there was actually a tank with the x-ray in which it was immersed in this tank, and then it would be removed after a certain period of time, and it did come out soaking wet, and you would hold it up to this light. So wet reads were basically 1970s kind of thing or earlier, uh, unless you were in the Indian Health Service when it was later. Well, very, <laughs> hey, listen, very useful. Uh, these guys say patients must have an opportunity to agree or object to such disclosures while they are in the emergency department. However, disclosures to family and friends involved with a patient's care are permissive under HIPAA. So, Mike, as you've noted before, the physician's judgment can be used in terms of, well, the wife is there, they want to know the culture results, and uh, they know that the culture results will be called in, and uh, it would be perfectly appropriate under those terms for the wife to know the results of the culture if the husband is uh, in septic shock or something upstairs. So I think there are some times when you can certainly do this, I think that this idea of, of physicians using discretion, but certainly you, would, you don't want to fall into these traps of giving out the uh, information that is inappropriate. In that regard, I've got an article here from a, a journal called The Clinical Advisor, October 2015. This is a um, real case by, written up by an attorney where a driver of an automobile runs into a tree and is brought into the emergency department by ambulance where he confines to the nurse that he fell asleep and had been drinking and hit the tree. Subsequently, he's determined that this fellow is a policeman. So one of the other nurses decides, hey, you know, there's a policeman in that department who lives next door to me. Uh, so she calls the policeman who lives next door. It turns out that that policeman who lives next door is the supervisor of the person who hit the tree. The person who is the supervisor then comes to the hospital, reads the person's medical record, and then goes in to, and talks to the patient. How many HIPAA Rick, violations? Rick, before you say anything else, before you go any further, <laughs> they just need to shoot themselves. Why in the world would, would somebody be reading the chart of another patient? You asked this question, did they ask the patient who they wanted notified, brought to the hospital? Everything no, a, everything about this case about is wrong. Six hippas in one, one case. Yeah, the, this is a, like a, it's not a twofer <laughs> or a threefer. This is like a niner. I, I don't know how you could make this many mistakes at one time. Mike, what would you advise them to do? Well, you know, I'd have the same advice, but I can answer your question. It's an unfortunate answer. I mean, you're asking why we anybody do this. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people, and even in the ER, who defer to police and who basically think, well, we need to assist the police. The police are our friends, and we need to assist them. We're on the same team. I think that's the answer, and I think that's unfortunate. Yep. But yeah, this is absolutely wrong. And Rick, tell us what happened to these people. Well, there's a big lawsuit, basically, as you can envision. Now, they don't go through the how much it was, it was settled for. It was settled. But I think the idea was, initially, it was maybe well-intended. Maybe well-intended. Let's call the, my neighbor. He's a policeman as well. Maybe he can help out here in some manner like that. 
But it certainly went downhill thereafter. Yeah. Number eight, Greg, is well, a question specifically related to that. Why don't the, you give us number eight? I, I guess this happened 500 times in my career where the police ask a question about somebody in there. Now, you gotta, you got to decide what is the need to know, why do they have to know things. Here's what, I, here's what I learned. I'll give you the three big points. Number one, if they want to get the chart afterwards and test results, they can, the police have the ability to subpoena the chart. They can get all that stuff if they need it. Secondly, if the patient, I'm doing tests for medical reasons, for the benefit of the patient. I'm examining them for medical reasons, for their benefit, not the police's benefit. I love the police. We're good friends. But I've educated a lot of young policemen who immediately want this information and want to read the chart and say, you know what? You don't want this case thrown out on a technicality. And I've seen cases tossed out because the fruit of the poison tree, when they went after information they weren't supposed to have and the judge tossed it. I don't know, Mike, have you ever seen this sort of thing? Yeah, I have seen that sort of thing. And this particular exception gets back to HIPAA. There are some permissive exceptions under HIPAA to providing information to the police officers, and uh, and they list them. The information is needed to determine whether another person violated the law, and it has to be the PHI is not intended to be used against the patient, or an immediate law enforcement activity depends on the disclosure, or the activity would be materially and adversely affected by waiting until the patient is able to agree to the disclosure. The first thing is this only applies if the patient is incapacitated and you can't talk to the patient because most of the time the easiest thing is to ask the patient, is it okay if I, uh, if I tell the police what your condition is? And oftentimes what the police need to know is, is this a serious injury, for example? Is this going to be a felony or is this going to be a misdemeanor? And it's really going to affect how the police handle the case. And so they have an interest in doing that. And under HIPAA, that kind of information is important. Now, just trying to know, for example, what's the patient patient's alcohol level because I want to know whether to arrest them or not or charge them with DUI. Depending on state statutes, the officer may or may not be entitled to have that information. And unless the, the statutes do provide the officer with entitlement to that information, you can't provide it under HIPAA because that's going to be used against the patient. By the way, states have have, uh, different ways of handling this. In the state of Indiana, Indiana State Police have essentially warrant authority to get the blood result. They don't have to go to a judge. They don't have to do any of that stuff. The state of Indiana says if they have reasonable suspicion... They can get the information. There are other states that don't handle it that way. And so I think emergency physicians, more than any other group of physicians, need to be aware of what the state law is because there's not going to be a night go by where this kind of question isn't going to come up. And I think you need to know that. The other thing is a lot of things aren't minute to minute. If there's somebody injured in an auto accident, it's multiple car and there's going to be lawsuits, and there's going to be somebody charged. That information, if you've taken the correct laboratory studies, is going to be available to the police, and they can get a warrant for the chart. Yeah, the other, the, the other thing which this brings up, up in a situation which, uh, which occurs fairly frequently is where the police bring a patient in for treatment. The patient is under arrest. 
The police then release the patient and on their way out say, give us a call before you discharge the patient because we want to come back and take him into custody again. And so the question is, are you permitted to call the police before the patient is discharged and let them know for this purpose? And I can tell you right now is that the answers that you get from a lot of attorneys and a lot of police officers is going to be incorrect. And the reason it's going to be incorrect is a fascinating story, which is actually worthy of a Jeannie Lenzer expose. Uh, what, What happened, this question was asked back in 2003, the Arizona Hospital Association teamed up with a law firm to answer this question, but they also teamed up at the same time with the Maricopa County Attorney's Office in Arizona and the Arizona Association of Chiefs of Police. So those are the people who were asking the question and created this monograph and actually said that it would be permitted. And the exception which they invoked for this is that, and I quote, a covered entity may disclose protected health information in response to a law enforcement official's request for information for the purpose of identifying or locating a suspect, fugitive, material witness, or missing person. That's wrong to start with. That's not the, the exception is they don't know where the person is. And can, can there be anybody who can seriously argue that the police don't know where the person is when they're asking to be called to come and pick up the person? Now, here's where it gets more interesting and why a lot of lawyers don't get this right. This same monograph was edited slightly and published as a monograph for the American Health Lawyers Association. And it was published over the attorney's names, the attorneys who drew up the monograph. And they attributed this to the Arizona Hospital and Healthcare Association. But they somehow neglected to mention the participation and sponsorship of Maricopa County Attorney's Office and the Arizona Association of Chiefs of Police. They just happened to leave that information out. (laughs) Yeah, how did that happen? You understand, I I hope all our listeners understand why they do that. That's so that they're not responsible for the bill. They, if they're in under arrest and they bring you into the emergency department, we can send our bill or anything that isn't paid, we can send that to the sheriff's department. They don't want to be providing health care. So what they want us to do is run up everything on the patient's insurance that we can and then notify them if there's a reason that the patient should be rearrested. You know, this Gen- is not right. Gentlemen, so- we have uh, six mu- uh, minutes left. So I think we should pass on the last one or two. Well, can we do nine really quickly? It's a, a supervisor brings in an employee for a medical issue. After treatment, the supervisor requests an update on the employee's status. See this all the time. These guys say, in general, providers, us, must have the employee's authorization to disclose health-related information to an employer. However, unless the provider is treating the employer employee for a work-related illness or injury. So if you fall off a ladder at work, your employer is allowed to know you broke a leg. Yeah, especially when this is being covered under a workers' compensation yeah. system, the employer is permitted to know what they're going to be covering. Now, again, this is subject to the minimal necessary rule. In other words, you don't provide, for example, you don't send the whole patient's record to the employer, but you do send, you do share diagnoses and condition with the mm-hmm. employer, and that is permitted. By the way, 
this is much more common than you can ever expect. I worked in a hospital which was right next door to a major Ford Motor Company plant. How many people do you think were in there working on a shift who'd been drinking or had drugs on board? So now they've got a workman's comp claim. We send over the chart, which asks all those questions. Do you use drugs? Do you do this? Do you do that? We sent the entire chart, said, yeah, they tripped over the box. They got a sprained ankle. We're going to have to put them on light duty for a week and that sort of thing. And then they read the fact that the patient admitted that they were under the influence at the time this happened. You know what? Uh, You can't have it both ways. The union wanted all injuries covered. The quid pro quo was the health records of that injury would then go back to the medical department at Ford Motor Company. It was a, it was always a nasty affair and it, it was never pleasant. Yeah, a lot of those agreements specify that for any injury, injury that requires medical treatment, the patients will have uh, drug screens yes. done, and those results are going to be provided to the employer as well. But that's usually subject to the collective bargaining right. agreement. Correct. Gentlemen, we have uh, five minutes left. Do you uh, want to wrap this up? Mike, any final thoughts? No, it's been a, been a pleasure. I really enjoy uh, talking about these issues, especially because these are very real issues. They they occur on a regular basis. This is not not just ethereal uh, philosophizing. These are things that I get calls our docs about on a regular basis. So this is very real, practical stuff. Greg, you got like four minutes for wine of the month, sir. That's all I get. And you realize you get. I, get, I did none of the other cases. I gave none of the other stuff. It's just so much fun having Mike on with us. But, it, but he, he's, got a, he's a fountain of knowledge. He can fill up all the, all the time we have. Let me uh, take two wines I want to talk about for just a second. One is the 2013 Luli, L-U-L-I Chardonnay, which is a fantastic Chardonnay. 20 bucks a bottle, Rick. Now this is this is from the Monterey area and it is just this weekend I had to spend some time having wine poured down my throat against my better judgment obviously but it was terrific 20 bucks a bottle I'd get it the one I would point out if you're having somebody for dinner and you want to show off a great California wine again the 2012 Stag's Leap uh, Wine Cellars Cabernet the Artemis Cabernet is it's a little pricey but not compared to that region of California. This is where they're having 2 and 3 and 400 dollar bottle wines. This is as good as any of them I've tasted at 55 bucks. Now, 55 bucks most of us can handle for an event kind of wine and all the other wineries around them are charging a lot more money for wine that doesn't taste any better. So I would go with that Stag's Leap. And enjoy yourself. Michael, any final thoughts? No, it sounds like I'm not going to be trying that Stag's Leaf. Probably a little bit too pricey, but... Uh, I, <laughs> well, but, I but know I, that you are a fan of red wine. I am a fan of red wine. You're right. Yeah. That's right. In any case, guys, I want to thank you both for participating. This is, I think, a pretty unique issue, focusing on HIPAA in detail. 
Uh, Michael, you added a lot to uh, this in terms of expanding our knowledge way above what this article talked about. However, I would recommend to you out there to go get this article. The uh, It's on the Internet, and I think that you'll appreciate it. You can look at some of the details. There are some other things that were in the article that we did not cover. In any case, that is the October issue of Risk Management Monthly. Thanks for listening, and bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Thank <laughs> you.